Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Here in verse 8, Peter says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In the larger context of Peter's letter, you see an indication that these instructions in this text are not only for slaves, husbands, and wives, but for everyone in the body of Christ, everyone in the community of believers, those who are aliens in a foreign land, outcasts, those who are citizens of heaven and have Christ in heaven, they even have him in their hearts, but they must recognize that they have each other. And there is a clear and mandated code of conduct for how they are to treat one another. In fact, this clear mandate is not simply a recipe for how we are to treat one another, but how we are to think of one another, which will lead to appropriate conduct and treatment of one another. These character traits are attitudes, and they describe the believer. In the past several weeks in our series titled The Biblical Church, we saw that Paul uses similar terminology in Romans 12, where in verse 10 he says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Peter and Paul repeatedly emphasized the need for becoming immersed in one local church, each member devoted to the others. Just as a human body needs each of its parts to function in proper working order so that its head will be viewed accurately, so it goes with the body of Christ, whose head is only viewed accurately when his body functions in proper working order. A big part of what Peter is attempting to accomplish here is that Christians would serve one another and have the right attitudes toward one another. The person who thinks himself to kind of be out there on his own, doing his own thing, he doesn't really need the body, he can kind of dip his toe into the church every now and then, just kind of see how that works out, and have a little thing here, a little thing there. Oh, and I'll go visit that church for a while, and I'll do this for a while, do their Sunday nights, here Wednesday mornings, whatever, on and on and on. He has not embraced the reality that his role is to be a proper working part of a local body so that its head would be seen accurately. As we jump into each of these descriptive terms that describe the character traits of the faithful Christian, we'll start, of course, with the first one, which is 
Harmony. We're called here to live in harmony with one another. To live in harmony. Occasionally on Sunday mornings, you hear people singing here in harmony. And what's happening? They're not singing the same melody line. When people are singing in unison, they're singing the same exact notes. Unison is everybody singing together. And it sounds good because they're actually together. And when someone varies from that, it's like, oh, it didn't sound right. I don't know why, but it didn't sound right. On the other hand, when someone begins to sing something different, but it works, it's harmony. And it's better than melody by itself. That's why when you hear a quartet or a quintet or a sextet, a group of people singing together or playing musical instruments together, and you say, man, that's kind of crazy. They're all playing different things, but it works. And it's, it's a lot better than just one guy standing up there playing his trumpet or singing, which would be great. But to hear them all doing that together, it's remarkable that God's given us the blessing of that. And one of the greatest blessings of that to hear music played in such a grandiose fashion, whether it be in a musical or uh, uh, just a symphonic concert of some sort or a CD that you listen to in your car, is that it is expressive of how the body of Christ is called to work. Each with its role. Not necessarily doing the exact same thing in unison. That happens sometimes. But more so than otherwise, not doing the same thing. But it works. And the result is that the body is in proper working order. And the person who says, I'm part of the body of Christ and wants nothing to do with a particular local church is not helping. He's the one that's out of tune. And it sounds like it. And it looks like it. And it creates disruption. And it creates problems for people in the body and people outside the body. But Peter here says, be harmonious. The term literally means like-minded. Be of like mind. Live in harmony with one another. Hebert says, this is more a call for unity of disposition than uniformity of opinion. It's not to say that we shouldn't be certain about agreeing on sound doctrine. It's just that that's not Peter's point right here. His point is we should have unity of disposition. We should long to enjoy one another. We should long, we should desire, we should have great interest in making life enjoyable for one another. Although this is the only use of this adjective in the New Testament, Paul uses the infinitive that goes like this, to be minding the same, in Romans 12, 16, among other passages. Be of the same mind, minding the same, toward one another, And the opposite, he explains immediately. He says, let me read it again. Be of the same mind toward one another. It's Romans 12, 16. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Be engaged in harmony with the body, with substantial interaction. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11 says, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, Be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Well, i got a church that I kind of like, but I'm not really like-minded with them. Then you're not part of that church. You're an observer. Philippians 2, verse 2, Paul says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love. 
united in spirit, intent on one purpose. You see, this is an intrinsic passion of the person who loves Christ and therefore loves the body of Christ. The idea is one of unity. Jesus speaks of this in John 17 where he says to the Father, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, speaking of his disciples, right? This is where Jesus has said, sanctify them. Speaking to the Father, sanctify them with truth. Your word is truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. You see that? How's the world going to believe that the Father sent the Son as they observe those who are in the Son? Observe them what? in their interaction with their church. Do they love one another? Do they have grace for one another? Are they invested in each other's lives? Jesus goes on to say, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. See that? The role that you and I play in the world is a result of the role that we play with each other. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, Paul says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And you know this. Paul isn't simply saying agree for the sake of agreeing. He's saying understand things rightly. And where does that take place? In the context of the body of Christ that must be taught by a teacher. Teachers. In Ephesians 4 verse 3, being diligent to Preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul here is speaking about the the fundamental foundation of the church of Jesus Christ, that the church was launched through the leadership of apostles and prophets in the beginning of the New Testament era. And when apostles and prophets no longer operated, when they no longer existed, when they all died, then what do you have? Evangelists and pastor teachers. And so Paul addresses both of those things, lays out the foundation for the church being the apostles and prophets in Ephesians 2.20. That foundation is laid, and now you have evangelists and pastor teachers. How do you come to the proper unity of the Spirit? Through an understanding of sound theology. Hebert goes on to say, the oneness called for by that adjective is an inner unity of sentiment and disposition, aim, or purpose. A unity of heart because of a similar inner experience. It is a unity that arises from having the mind of Christ. Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The theology of the gospel is the ultimate theology upon which we are to live our lives and to communicate truth to others. That we would have the mind of Christ. The term there is noose. It's translated either as mind or as attitude. But the fact is, he's talking about your inner person. He's talking about your heart attitude. That you would have the heart attitude of Christ. And what was his heart attitude? It was one that would lead to like-mindedness of the body if everyone in the body would subject themselves to it. Well, the next adjective then is sympathetic. 
We are to be not only harmonious, but sympathetic. And this literally means to share fellow feelings. To share fellow feelings. Whether one's feelings are joyous or sad, there is a compulsion for sharing them. And, and you're probably thinking of Romans 12, 15, even as I'm describing this, where Paul says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. What is that? Is that just a simple uh, intellectual assent to write theology as it is on paper and in some sort of system? No, it's not that. It is a willingness because of that right theology to have sympathy. In essence, to feel the pain of others. To share their feelings. You see this in Hebrews 4, verse 15, of our Savior, about whom it is said, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are yet without sin. Passage to go on to explain that Jesus was weak. He was humanly weak in the same way that you and I are humanly weak. It's not a disparaging comment about Jesus. It is the reality that he is God incarnate. A number of cults will produce an admixture of his deity and his humanity. And, and so you've got this weird conglomeration. He's kind of God, kind of man. He's completely God, completely man. And very important to understand that he is, in fact, completely man who is not a high priest, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He does. He really, really does. And because he does sympathize with your weaknesses, one of the worst things you or I could do is to harness people into an unbearable yoke of doing something theologically or spiritually that they cannot do in a depraved condition, but to trust the Holy Spirit to produce that in them through our exhibition of compassion. Sympathetic. Hebrews 10, verse 32 says, After being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, very similar to the context of 1 Peter, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. See that? Partly by becoming sharers with those who were equally treated poorly, uh, they were enlightened, you were enlightened, because you responded rightly to the tribulation, to the reproach. Verse 34 of Hebrews 10. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. What will it take for those in Christ, those in the true church of Christ? What will it take for those of the Anchor Bible Church to have the ability to be enlightened, but also to help enlighten others? It will be a right response to suffering. And as the writer of Hebrews here is pointing out very clearly, this is the dealing with the seizure of their property. Don't tell an American we're going to take your property and expect him to respond with grace, to respond with something other than retaliation, to respond sympathetically. Brotherly, it's the third adjective. You would imagine, and you would be right if you did, that this is from the word Philadelphia, Philadelphia. You can actually write brotherly love or brotherly lovingly to be even more accurate this term is used in Greek literature for biological brother it also is 
only used here in the New Testament as an adjective, as a descriptive term. Although the noun is used back in chapter 1, the, the noun that's derived from the same root word in chapter 1, verse 22, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, that's the noun form, fervently love one another, that's the verb form, from the heart. So you have the noun form and the verb form in verse 22 of chapter 1 of this adjective here that describes the person who lives his life that way. He is brotherly loving. He has a deep love for others because he considers them to be his brother. And I think you know this. This is why we call our home groups family groups. I was explaining to a man yesterday uh, who was asking about our church that our family groups are not families groups. They are family groups, meaning there are some people who are in those groups with their biological family, some who are not, but the point is having nothing really to do so much with biological family but the spiritual family. And that really is, is happening over and over and over and over. The people are really thinking of one another as Philadelphos, as brothers, sisters in Christ and serving each other that way. In uh, chapter 4, verse 8, Peter says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. How about that? Keep fervent in your love for one another. Keep fervent in your brotherly belief about those in the body of Christ. Be fervent about it. Be deliberate about it. Feel it. May it be real about you. In 1 John 3, verse, verse 14, John speaks of this as an exclusive expression of what it means to be in Christ. A person who doesn't have brotherly love is not born of God. Verse 14 of 1 John 3 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Uh, John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have brotherly love for one another. Now, I mean, it's not so easy in our church, especially now that we've moved into our new building and the, and the lighting is really good. You have to actually look at each other. <laughs> at Wabash, you could sit in the back and, you know, get there late, leave early, and maybe nobody would notice, and you could have a really seriously bad attitude about several people. And maybe it wouldn't have much of an impact on them. It certainly impacted you. But now that we're here, you've got to look at each other. And our church is still relatively small, such that if you have it out for somebody, that's going to surface pretty obviously at some point, especially if you're engaged faithfully in the body of Christ, where in our context, what that looks like is family groups and discipleship. But why does a person only come to the worship service? Because he doesn't want the accountability of the body of Christ. And so he's got no impulse because of being around the brethren to be engaged in brotherly love there's no need for it in his life as far as he knows peter also calls us to be kind-hearted to be described as being kind-hearted this is compassion tender-hearted in Ephesians 4:32 you see the love of god expressed to mankind and the resultant love of man for others be kind to one another, tender-hearted, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And there will be people, though, who will say, well, 
I'm not forgiving him until he's, you know, earned it. As soon as he becomes forgivable, then I'll forgive him. Jesus warns that the person who has that type of mindset about forgiveness has not been forgiven. Paul goes on in Colossians 3, verse 12, to say, So, pointing back to God's sovereignty, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, so set apart and loved by God, those who have been chosen by God, put on a heart of compassion. Put on a kind-hearted heart. Put on a tender-hearted heart. Do you see now how easy it is and how natural and really normal it is for the person who has a very man-centered theology about the doctrines of grace that they would hold people in a compulsory way to do something that they can't do. You can only be tender-hearted toward someone whose life you look at and say, that person's clearly not a Christian. His life is full of debauchery. The only attitude you can have toward that person if you think that you brought yourself to Christ is that all he has to do is bring himself to Christ. And that's not compassionate. But the person who is compassionate, the person who is kind-hearted, is so because he understands that kind-heartedness, compassion, are rooted in the character of God. As he has undeservingly received the compassion of God, he longs to extend that compassion to others, especially within the body of Christ. Friends, if you and I can't do this within the body... How in the world could we be expected to do it with a lost and dying world who hates us with an intrinsic passion? We're told to be humble here. It's the fifth adjective. Humble in spirit. Humble in who you are. Humble in character. Humility is, by the way, the crown characteristic of the Christian faith. No other religion calls you to humility. Pseudo-Christianity doesn't even call you to humility. Pseudo-Christianity and the seeker-friendly movement, the, the emergent movement, and every false movement throughout the ages calls you, especially today, to higher self-esteem. The Word of God calls you to esteem others as more important than self. And this is exactly what Peter is calling us to here. The King James, unfortunately, renders this as courteous. In fact, the Textus Receptus says, friendly-minded, courteous. And the manuscript for this rendering is extremely weak. John Calvin said it well when he said, that man is truly humble who neither claims any personal merit in the sight of God nor proudly despises brethren or aims at being thought superior to them but reckons it enough that he is one of the members of Christ and desires nothing more than that the head alone should be exalted. Plainly, humility is an increasingly accurate view of self in light of God's assessment. You see an expression of humility in Mark chapter 9, where Jesus has this interesting exchange with the disciples. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. 
They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me but him who sent me. Meaning that the childlike faith that's naturally exhibited in a child, he's not saying that children are believers in Christ, he's saying that they are naturally believing. Uh, The the person who naturally and willingly and uh, completely believes in him, trusts in him, recognizing that that it is enough to know him. And that person doesn't want to be great, he wants to be last. He wants to serve. He does not want to be known for spiritual greatness. He simply wants to serve the one who is spiritually great. You know that Paul says in Philippians 2, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude. Humility is an adjectival attitude. It is a deep conviction that you are less important than everyone on the planet. And it manifests itself in how you think about other people, and that manifests itself in how you treat other people. And if you are holding someone, whether it's simply in the privacy of your own mind or publicly by way of conversation, to some sort of bondage that requires them to treat you better than they do, you are not exhibiting this Christian attitude. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. One manner in the church with which this works is displayed in 1 Peter 5, verse 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. This is Peter speaking to those who are younger in the faith, those who are less mature in the faith. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You see, this is intrinsically connected to the care of God for those who will humble themselves. Those who will humble themselves are those who receive God's care. They cast their anxieties upon him because they do not think more highly of themselves than they ought. But the one who is constantly frustrated, deals with anger, deals with bitterness, thinking that he's better than others, he's constantly bound up and thinking about how he is achieving things that others are not achieving, and he's constantly comparing himself to them and how he does better and they do worse and on and on and on. He's not simply considering them to be better than himself. He's proud. 
And therefore, his life is not an exhibition of God's grace. That's why he doesn't receive God's grace. That's why he doesn't receive blessing. It's all wrapped up in an attitude of self-exaltation. And many times, this is guised in false humility. As we observe the commands in this morning's passage, you must have seen that there is a very clear need for grace. An understanding of grace. The theme of 1 Peter is grace. Chapter 5, verse 10 After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Whether in your mind or on your notebook or in your Bible, mark it down. The person who genuinely exhibits these Christian characteristics is a person who is bent on operating by God's grace. So it's no mystery that the person who is bent on a man-made, man-centered theology might do a decent job here and there of dabbling with these Christian characteristics, but they're not intrinsic to his theology. He thinks he brought himself to Christ. He thinks he wasn't spiritually dead. He thinks that somehow he flipped the switch, that he pulled the trigger, that he initiated his life. In Christ. And so, what does he expect of others? Something other than an act of grace. But if it is, in fact, all by grace, we would do well to take Peter's advice where he says to us in chapter 5, verse 12 stand firm in grace. Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in grace. Friends, that's the gateway into having a truly non-bitter, loving attitude, especially toward the body of Christ. You remember from chapter 1, verse 10, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. What did they prophesy of? They prophesied of grace. They prophesied of grace, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look, things into which you couldn't look, things into which you didn't want to look until what? You received grace. You have a strong proclivity to abandon harmony You don't mind sowing seeds of dissension here and there? You have a strong proclivity to abandon sympathy, to be non-sympathetic, to not have brotherly love, to not be kind-hearted, to not be humble. You talk about humility, but you don't really want it. What's the problem? It's a lack of grace. And it 
might not only be that you're not interested in extending grace, it might be that you've never received Christ by grace. It might be that you're all wrapped up in a decision that you made when you were six, which was not an act of grace. This is specifically related to our treatment of one another in the body of Christ. What we see in this passage is really impossible. It's completely impossible without grace. It's utterly impossible for the unbeliever who only wants something out of what he gives. He does what he does to get something. In Galatians 6, starting with verse 1, listen to this. A very, very difficult scenario here that Paul addresses in Galatians 6. You know, Galatians 6 really exposes the, uh, the heretical mindset of legalism, but also the believing mindset of legalism. In other words, unbelievers who are devoted to legalism as well as believers who are devoted to legalism. He tells them that you knew the gospel, and he points out that they are in Christ. And he explains the fact that you've abandoned God for a false gospel, a false gospel of legalism, something you did. Here's a question for you. Somebody says, how do you know you're a Christian? What's your answer? Well, I did this. I prayed this prayer. I asked Jesus into my heart. It cannot be about what you did. That's legalism on all levels. You're attributing your spiritual life to your efforts to your ability, which you didn't have if you were, in fact, totally depraved, which the Bible clearly explains you were. So in Galatians 6, where Paul has, as you know, up to that point, dealt extensively with legalism, he even talks about the fact that he had reprimanded publicly Peter and Barnabas for their legalism. And everybody's got to go through this working out of their problems, right? The person who thinks he's got it all wired... And he just wants to listen to Bible teaching to see whether or not the guy's going to say what agrees with him. Ought to keep in mind the fact that Peter and Barnabas were corrected publicly by Paul. But at this point, Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Is that your mode? Is that your pattern? You find out that a Christian, person you thought was a Christian, person you believe is a Christian, engaging in sin? No, no, no. I, I go to him and I tell him to get his act together. Cut it out. Stop it. What's wrong with you? The initial entryway into being able to say those things, which sometimes need to be said, is a pathway of grace. Proof over time, especially the one who's committed to grace. Brethren, if anyone is caught in trespass, and by the way, you remember from our study of the book of Galatians, many of you, uh, Paul is not here saying that he's been caught, he's been trapped, he's been trapped in sin, we got him, woohoo. He's talking about the fact that he is entangled and he can't move spiritually. So whatever that sin is, he has rendered himself unable to pull out of it. If anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of hatred. No, you know that's not right, but you might be guilty of it. Restore such a one with a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. 
But this self-righteous attitude that somebody else's actions are just worse than what they should be because they're worse than mine is not helpful. It's not gentle. Verse 2, Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens. What does that mean? Bear one another's burdens. The burden of sin. Help the person with the load. Come up underneath the load of sin with that person gently and help them. Counsel them. Spend time with them. Invest in them. They're communicating, I don't want this to be what my life is like. What do they need to see from you? They need to see harmony in the body. They need to see sympathy. They need to see brotherly love. They need to see kind-heartedness, and they need to see humility. So, Lord, help us not to simply be devoted to these character traits in such a way that we want to be known by them. Oh, Lord, help us if we resort to such a desperate state. But, Father, help us to ensure that these things are actually true of us, that we are genuinely compassionate, genuinely committed to brotherly love, genuinely committed to humility. And Lord, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.